0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Episode 2-33, also known as Season 2, Episode 33, which is otherwise known as the 100th episode of Watch With Jen that I've released so far. When I started this thing in March of 2020, in the weeks before lockdown, remember that? It was like a decade ago. It was before we had any idea what the world would look like in the time of COVID. I could never have imagined that people would not only listen to this podcast, but also graciously agree to appear upon it as well. So I want to thank you, both the listeners and also my friends, Jordan Harper, Kate Gabrielle, Candace Frederick, Kristen Lopez, Rob Belushi, Walter Cha, Jed Ayers, and others for being the first to say yes without any hesitation. Your kindness, confidence, and support has been invaluable. And when this is all over, I hope we can all hang out and I can take you to a movie in real life to say thank you as well. I also want to send so much love to my Patreon supporters. Your financial contributions have been invaluable and your great feedback. I've loved reading. You guys have helped me pay for a better microphone, film rentals that I've needed to keep up with my great guests, and also the tech fees that the show incurs. So I could not do this podcast without you. Additionally, I'm sending my extra gratitude to you, Kate Gabrielle, for designing the logos for season one and two, and also just recently kicking off a new merch line of designs inspired by the figures and films we've highlighted on this show, including a gorgeous new rendering of Sofia Coppola with images from Marie Antoinette and Lost in Translation that you can find in the official Watch with Jen shop hosted by Kate. If you visit my site, filmintuition.com, you will see links for the Watch with Jen RSS feed, as well as our Patreon, where you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. And of course, there's a link for our shop, where you can bring home a piece of the podcast on a sticker, tote, or t-shirt as well. More designs will start being released in the coming weeks, so I hope you stay tuned for that. But back to Watch With Jen. Over the past year and a half, the podcast has evolved from two subpods. The first, a film recommendation series, and a second, a free-flowing conversation with guests about what they've been watching called Watch With Jen and Friends. Obviously, that got confusing, so I just combined it into one. It has since morphed into what my dear friend and podcasting guru inspiration, Mr. Blake Howard, has likened to an audio version of a film essay with thoughtful dialogue about movies that we love, ones we wish were better, but we try to articulate why and open it up to all lines of thinking. Starting last fall with some theme episodes that I did with William Boyle on Mickey Rourke and fall or Halloween movies with Nell Minow, I began to realize that I preferred these more focused explorations of film. But it wasn't until I did that first feature-length, in-depth, career-spanning episode on Sofia Coppola with Roxana Haddadi that I decided that yes, this is what the podcast should be in its second season— Starting with the season's first episode with author Megan Abbott, where we explored her favorite underrated or overlooked films from Martin Scorsese, this series has morphed into something very exciting, research-intensive, and it's hopefully been as enjoyable to listen to as it has been to produce. After writing more than 2,500 pieces in the past 15 or so years as a film critic, I needed a new primary way to share my thoughts on movies with the world, and I'm so proud of what my gifted, generous, thrilling guests and I have achieved. And I hope you guys feel the same. Obviously, I am very passionate about it, and to celebrate this 100-episode landmark, I've decided to go with a Titanic-sized conversation that not only is about a passionate iconoclast, but it was done with a very passionate, insightful critic that I know you will love. So once again, I want to thank you for listening or being there for me from the beginning or whenever you tuned in. I am grateful. Here's to 100 more episodes. We have some awesome stuff ahead, including new installments on Al Pacino and Judy Holiday and just great things in store. But for now, away we shall go. On to Jim Cameron. A contributor to Variety, RogerEbert.com, The Playlist, Time Out New York, Filmmaker Magazine, and Vulture. I am so pleased to welcome back the thoughtful and articulate freelance writer and reviewer, Thomas Laughley, to the podcast, a member of the prestigious New York Film Critics Circle. Thomas has a special interest in women in film, the award season, and costume design, and is also a veteran of covering film festivals from Telluride to the New York Film Festival and beyond, a guest early on in the show's history way back when I was calling these non-solo episodes Watch with Jen and Friends. Needless to say, Thomas, we've been so overdue for a follow-up chat, so I'm absolutely thrilled to be monopolizing your afternoon today. So how are you doing? How's your gorgeous dog, Audrey? And how's Summer been treating you and your husband so far?
1: Oh, gosh, thank you for that lovely intro, first of all, and also for having me. Of course. (laughs) Podcast. I'm so excited. It was just so lovely to talk to you. And that was a while ago. I can't believe it. It's been way too long. (laughs) Way too long. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been such a weird, crazy week this week that I've been looking forward to this couple of hours that we put aside even more than, you know, like I, I normally would. And I'm, you know, just excited normally anyway, um, you know, just to step away from all the deadlines and everything and just talk a couple of hours about James Cameron. Yes, yeah, um, so excited. Yeah, I mean, It's so exciting. It's It's been a good summer so far, I have to say, you know. Um with the I don't want to say pandemic winding down with the delta variant mm-hmm. again, but you know at least feeling the semi comfort of being vaccinated, yes to be out there again and seeing people going to screenings those those were all positive improvements um but Audrey doesn't like any of that, which means we're out and about more and leaving her home more.
0: oh no. <laughs> Poor Audrey, yeah, but it's been good getting out there a little bit, and yeah, kind of getting back in the world a bit.
1: Trying to remember, how to interact with people. (laughs) I know,
0: yeah, it's so funny. (laughs) Like, how does conversation work again? Exactly. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I always look forward to seeing where your byline winds up next and the pieces you've been working on. So have you published anything lately or are you working on anything? Obviously, you mentioned deadlines, transcriptions you had told me about. So anything new you want to give a shout out to or tell us to be on the lookout for?
1: Um, A couple of things that I'm working on over the weekend and next week. Uh, I am not sure if I'll- allowed to talk about them. Oh, yet. you're fine then. So that, you <laughs> know, they're super secret or, you know, that, you know, they're super high profile or anything, but.
0: No, you know, I gotcha.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have a couple of reviews coming out tomorrow okay. um, on RogerEbert.com. Um, One of them, I can enter a self promo it, because it's a movie that I really, it's called John and the whole. It's premiered in Sundance and it's opening this weekend in actual theaters. And I believe online too, although I'm not so sure. So that's something that I'm excited to share tomorrow when when it's up and running.
0: Very cool. Looking forward to it. Well, you're very well known for your love of Titanic. In fact, I remember chatting about it with, I believe you, and also your good friend, Diana Drum, during her episode on Sinister Men. So hi, Diana, if you're listening. I was really thrilled when you suggested taking a closer look at Titanic writer-director James Cameron's filmography. And this is honestly for a few reasons. Obviously, not only do I love doing deep dives on directors like Sophia Coppola with Roxana Haddadi or Preston Sturges with Jordan Harper and others in the past, but there's also something so refreshing, unexpected, and intriguing about tackling a noted man's man with another woman. The first episode of this season was Megan Abbott and I. Uh, taking on her underrated or under-discussed favorites from Martin Scorsese. And this idea appealed to me on a similar level. So obviously we will go into the movies on a more intense level in a minute. But before we do that, I would love to know what is it about James Cameron's work that resonates so strongly with you?
1: Um, I think to start with, I would say that he is one of those Hollywood filmmakers that really brings home for me what Hollywood filmmaking at the top level should be or can be like. Um, He is definitely not one that, you know, shies away from big budgets or crazy technology. You know, like that that doesn't just come t- uh, down to, you know, blowing away money. He knows exactly what to do with the kind of scale and scope that he is given, or sometimes he is not given, but he pushes for anyway. Um, I mean, a, a movie like Titanic, I know that we're going to get into it soon, but that to me is kind of like a dying breed of Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> Uh, even maybe a dead breed of Hollywood <laughs> blockbuster yes. is a, a phenomenal action movie, a pretty weepy, melodramatic love story that, you know, I personally love. And also th- a, a really tightly orchestrated screenplay. When you think about it, it's only a few days that we spend on that boat, but so much happens in that few days and somehow mm-hmm. it sells the plausibility of that to you. Yeah. Um, it's also a great thriller. Um, he, have, he has, his, you know, obviously cookie color characters like the poor guy, rich girl, etc. But again, those are some classic tropes that he knows exactly what to do with. Um, and also, you know, hopefully this won't sound so shallow, but for the most part, maybe if you weed out a couple of projects here and there, he really understands the kind of strong female that Mm -hmm. i want to see on screen and i mean yes sometimes he's criticized with his very single vision of what that strong female looks like physically you know like yeah that but you know to be perfectly honest i grew up in a generation in the 90s that i i didn't have you know things similar to Titanic's Winslet or mm-hmm. uh, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, who is, you know, basically the woman who is saving the world. Um, I was actually looking through Rebecca Keegan's book recently. Yeah, such a good book. It's, it's, an, it's a phenomenal book that um, she had this great analogy, or maybe she was quoting someone that saving the world was a woman's work too, finally, in yeah. terms 2. and It's a great metaphor that she used about the resourcefulness of single mothers. She basically Mm -hmm. takes a paperclip, and that paperclip is how she breaks out of that hospital and then launches, you know, her mission into saving the world. And those are important things for me that I didn't have equal and examples of as I was, you know, coming of age as a as an impressionable teenager. and if I have one complaint about James Cameron, that he didn't make nearly enough movies for me. <laughs> I know. Yeah. He, yeah, I mean, he just keeps waiting around for the technology hey! to exist to make.
0: Yes. Movie. He comes up with these ideas. I love his thing where he talks about, he never wastes anything. Like he was comparing himself to like a native American. Um, I forget which tribe, like don't waste any part of the animal that they kill. Like, I mean, Avatar came from a lot of different ideas as far back as the 90s, but like the color of their skin might have been in a painting he did in like college or high school. He's always filing away these ideas he had and using them later. So it's interesting. But yeah, sometimes he has to wait for that technology to catch up. And he's got so many scripts in his uh, drawer. She talks about several of the ideas he was working on. And it's like, pull another one out while you're waiting. But yes.
1: So, yes, I'm not exactly thrilled that we've been waiting all these years for a new Cameron, but um yeah, I,
0: you
1: know Rebecca Keegan's, um book's title is the Futurist, and he really kind of owns and earns that title. yeah, I mean,
0: absolutely you
1: know? so so in a nutshell, those are those are the things that I really love about James Cameron and I don't know if I have someone who is currently working that I can compare his work to just bringing home the big bold Hollywood, but in a extremely polished way that Mm -hmm. you crave from big budget filmmaking these days.
0: Yeah. There seems to be a good marriage of the emotion um, that you would find in independent filmmaking, which is kind of where he started with the Roger Corman shop, like making you know, he worked everything from art direction he talks about in the book, and the model shop, and like basically knew how to work everything on the movie set because it was a boot camp essentially where you learned every skill. But it was the same like we had to make a. I think there's a joke in um, the book James Cameron interviews that I was flipping through something like a fifty million dollar movie for six million, or you know, a very small budget. And so he's using sort of this intimate storytelling, but on a grand spectacle, huge Hollywood scale. And I think that's where he shines.
1: He he really does. And that's also one thing that I'm really missing in today's, you know, traditional Hollywood filmmaking, because, and this is not me sliding, you know, God forbid the superhero movies. Oh, you're fine. (laughs) You know, whenever... And, you know, I have obviously a lot of blind spots in that area of filmmaking too that I need to feel. But whenever with the best of intentions that I see myself going to one, because, you know, people would praise it or it, w- it will become too popular to- Ignore, you know, yeah. That you definitely need to pay attention to what people are watching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, and, you know, the first half hour, I'm like, okay, there is a story here. I can connect with these characters. I understand what's happening. And then everything culminates in this last, act of just absolute mayhem that you know i'm completely pulled out of the emotional core that i thought i was going to you know attach myself to so that's disappointing and that's that's where um you know there's a void that
0: yeah that's a really good point
1: if it's going to happen in the next five avatar movies or however many he's making i know
0: right yeah like four sequels come on yeah (laughs) So funny. No, but that's a really good point. It's like, you know, before it becomes Rock'em Sock'em Robots, which is kind of my joke for the end of all of those movies, it's like we want, you know, to connect a little bit of heart. And I think that's what he does so well. Yeah, well, today we'll be going through a handful of Cameron's biggest titles chronologically, starting with The Terminator, and we're going to go ahead and discuss T2, Judgment Day or Terminator 2 Judgment Day at the same time, because it makes the most sense, of course. And then we'll be tackling aliens. We're skipping the Abyss for time, but we will undoubtedly probably reference it throughout. So have no fear. Same with True Lies. Then after aliens, we're skipping True Lies, but tackling Titanic, of course, and following that up with Avatar. Obviously, it goes without saying that there will be spoilers ahead of varying degrees, so if you haven't seen any of the films mentioned, you might want to proceed with caution. So kicking things off, we have the Terminator franchise, the Cameron entries, of course, beginning with the 1984 original film about two very different travelers from a dystopian future, undone by technology after machines hasten the end of mankind, once the artificially intelligent components become self aware, the only hope for human survival is the man John Connor, a future freedom fighter and leader, and the unborn son of Linda Hamilton's Sarah Connor, an LA waitress with a cyborg assassin played by Arnold Schwarzenegger traveling back in time to kill Sarah before she can conceive and birth John. The future John sends the soldier, Kyle Reese, played by Michael Bean to 1984 to protect her. In the process, he declares his love for the woman he fell in love with through John's photo. And we discover that Kyle is John's father. Seven years after the release of Cameron's Surprise, science fiction hit a sleeper hit now that cameron was a household name thanks to aliens and the abyss he followed up the terminator with t2 judgment day reuniting with hamilton and schwarzenegger who this time plays the prepubescent john actor edward furlong's protector to the hunter killer advanced liquid metal t1000 cyborg played by robert patrick A smash hit, and still quite possibly, in my eyes, the greatest American-made action movie, and one that was made by a Canadian, no less. T2 found us not only seeing Schwarzenegger's franchise character in New Eyes, but Hamilton's as well, as she's revealed to have become, in the events following The Terminator, a badass, independent heroine. Obviously, I am a fan, and I know you are as well, so talk to me about The Terminator series.
1: Um, wow, that's going to be hard to follow up, the <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> amazing intro that you gave to the franchise. Um, I mean, the I think the craziest thing that I did not know previously before, you know, diving yeah. into this book is that um, apparently James Cameron always wanted to have two Terminators from the get-go, from the yes. very, very first movie. But I feel like and the reason I should say that he couldn't have the second one that he always envisioned as a liquid metal is because, you know, that that technology was not there, which is something mm-hmm. that I'm really talking about, you know, he has his ideas, but
0: yeah, he
1: hasn't caught up yet. But I mean, in, in this, um, in this case, the reason that I started with this fact is that in this case, I'm kind of glad that the technology did not exist. Me too. Right. You know, looking at the second movie, you really do um, understand watching it, why that first one was inevitable and why that was needed. I mean, obviously his craftsmanship comes to play here that he makes it seem inevitable. Mm -hmm. But I like that how the first Terminator is a... much smaller story at the core of it yes it is is a love story i mean cameron calls most of his movies love stories one way or the other it doesn't have to be literal love like in titanic Mm -hmm. Uh, but it it really is a is a much smaller leaner story and the second installment can only go up from there and oh
0: yeah
1: (laughs) yeah starts it starts it from a perfect place and your brain kind of melts when you think about it. That okay, John Connor's father is this guy from the future. But if that never happened, how you know? How yeah, <laughs> those details you can just get a little bit lost with any time travel movie. But, <laughs> yeah, don't hard,
0: but <laughs> yeah, don't think about it too hard. But
1: don't think about it too hard because it will just like kind of put you on this like crazy hamster wheel. You will never get out of it. Yes. Um But. I'm, I'm trying to remember the first time I saw that movie. Obviously, I was, you know, way too young. I didn't go to the theater. It was on TV that I caught it. But, wow, I mean, a, a giving a journey to a female character mm-hmm. who's from basically your average nobody who's just something, somebody living day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck, and all of a sudden, she realizes that the future of the world is basically... In her hands, and yeah. she basically goes from this extremely frightened, skeptical person to someone who understands the gravity of the situation that she was in, and there was absolutely nothing that she could do to, to change it. So she's either going to give in to despair and get murdered, or she's going to follow this complete stranger who is basically, you know, someone who sounds like a lunatic. I'm from the future. Yeah. <laughs> so just embark on that journey. And that idea to me was just so exciting. It is an incredibly well-made film. It has various different, extremely tall chase scenes that, you know, you, you, you watch them today and then you think, I wish people knew how to direct clean action like this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and and also, um, there is something to be said about the casting of Arnold Schwarzenegger too. Obviously, we take it for granted right now. He is the Terminator, mm-hmm. but really, you know, there are so few examples of a, a character this bulky, muscly, merciless, ruthless machine. That I mean I can't imagine a better match for that character. I mean such no. such such perfect casting. And it's just a really well-written, um, well-produced script from end to end. And again, you see a real character journey, Linda Hamilton starting from an extremely nothing vulnerable place and then rising to the occasion occasion, growing into these shoes. That's mm-hmm. Always exciting for, you know, everyone to see, but especially us women to see because we're not seeing those characters on screen a lot still. Um, And this journey doesn't only exist in any movie, but an action movie, again, not traditionally led by women, um, especially in those years. So those are my first impressions about why, you know, I will always be a, you know, cheerleader for the Terminator franchise.
0: And you just said the perfect word because while you were talking, it made me think how novel this was because everything Mm -hmm. that has come, I mean, there was, of course, Alien um, Ripley played by Sigourney Weaver and we're going to get the sequel from Jim Cameron in a little bit. But other than that, there really wasn't. There was like Leia in, I mean, who doesn't love Leia, but she's, you know, captured and in the bikini. And, you know, this was a totally different thing. And when you said cheerleader, I started to think of that show heroes, you know, save the cheerleader, save the world. There was Buffy, but these were like superhero women. But all these characters that came after the Terminator, after Sarah Connor. And what's so great about Sarah is she is like a waitress at a Bob's Big Boy, which was uh, James Cameron's wife's job when they were met in like college or junior college, I believe she was a waitress. And so he would go and wait for her and like watch her interact with people. So it's wonderful that, you know, she is a serious underdog. That's kind of a recurring thing throughout his movies. Um, Of course, Jack is a very famous underdog in Titanic, but I love that it's a woman here. She doesn't have superpowers. She has to, like you said, with a paper clip, use her brain and just be resourceful. I was remembering the first time I ever saw or anything with the franchise. It was actually the sequel. Um, I was about 11 or 12 and I was on vacation with my parents who had seen the movie and like some family friends and their kids and they had not seen the movie. And so we watched like the end. It came on on HBO And we watched the end of cape fear which you know i don't think i slept a week after i saw that we saw like the middle of cape fear he's holding on to the
1: car original or the remake
0: uh the remake with de niro and so who i knew in midnight run and had this weird crush on and so then i saw (laughs) that it scared me to death and then t2 started and as it's starting my parents were like trying to school my brother and i and on what had happened in the first movie And because they had been totally surprised uh, when they went into the theater, they sold all of us in the room. Like, well, Arnold was bad and here's what happened. And so we're watching this and, you know, bad to the bone plays, which is a little cheeky, a little on the nose. Uh, Cameron doesn't like to use songs in his movies, which because he thinks it pulls you out and it makes it like a music video, which I get. But so I'm watching this thinking, oh, my God, he's so scary. And then the next guy comes down and he's a cop and uh or he kills a cop takes the uniform but you're in your brain you're thinking maybe he didn't know and he's got to protect john or you're like rationalizing it And i thought that was really wonderful and so the first time i ever saw sarah connor she was in the mental uh institution and i'm like who is this lady so then when the muscles yes with the muscles kind of she has her own cape fear in prison you know uh thing where she's in shape and totally (laughs) scary and badass and totally unlike linda hamilton who i knew on my grandma's favorite show at the time which was like beauty and the beast which she had been on
1: i I am so glad i was not the only person you know aware that that show existed like oh really yeah i remember that yeah i was trying to talk to somebody the other day and i'm like nobody remembers this show i know that i'm not making it up no no I know, no fee
0: ever does. That's a really good point.
1: Uh, it was a really <laughs> lovely show that I was addicted to, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it was against type casting for Linda. Uh, or I shouldn't say against type. She'd already played Sarah Connor, obviously, but it was against expectations of we're assuming she's still this like kind of willowy uh, waitress who's a little shy and trying to figure things out. And now it's like, she's a hard ass and she's trying to figure out her way out of this mental mental institution to save John and save the world. Yeah.
1: And, you know, also a, a few things, hopefully I won't forget any of my points, but the, the thing that you started um, talking about, about how I guess subversive it is, right. That you expect Arnold to be. Yeah. Uh, um, not to go full Glenn Close, but bad Terminator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, But, you know, you, you expect them to be that. And I know you had a Twitter thread about this recently and people were mm-hmm. saying but in the trailer it was revealed. I mean, yeah. for those of you who did not watch the trailer, I was one of those people who did not see the trailer. Yeah. And I sometimes still try to kind of stay away from trailers. I do too. And, you know, um, so that I, you Know just know maybe the log line or or whatnot, mm-hmm. but not you know, even even the premise sometimes shifts your or shapes the way, yeah.
0: You. I agree. I won't read reviews and things ahead of time, then I'd love to read them afterwards, yeah. So,
1: you know, the long story short, I was like you when I first watched T2, I did not know that those tables were kind of flipped, you know, the roles were were changed. I was actually just talking about this very same thing that you tweeted about um, a, a few days before with my husband. And I said, just kind of imagine, I mean, James Cameron movies are in constant rotation in this house, more than I would like to admit. So, like, whenever we watch Titanic, isn't that great? Because we're kind of just how many minutes into this movie right now, we still have no idea who this guy is, and we still think that Arnold is actually pursuing Sarah and John. and Yeah. And then this great scene happened that you actually then just realize that who is who. Um, and yes, we did talk about that same thing the economy and you know the gambles that you mm-hmm. put that, because it it takes a lot of um kind of foresight to take something away from the audience that we you know arnold Schwarzenegger is the bad guy and that's why yeah. terminator is popular and to finally to all of a sudden decide that no he's no longer the bad guy that's just not gonna happen that's a big you know foresight and investment and a gamble and yeah. and he just really does does that beautifully and um to talk about sarah connor's journey there is definitely you know hints that her character has grown a lot by the end of the first terminator yeah you know when you actually switch from the first movie to the second all of a sudden you know like she is muscly yeah you know, lot leaner angrier and and definitely psychologically disturbed oh of course because, but even that has a point you know it's the woman no one will believe and yeah I love know, that that's the part that I really love about Terminator you know it's a different dimension of like believing women or not believing women but everybody is so convinced that she is crazy that there is absolutely nothing she can do you know in order to kind of break that um perception in, mm-hmm. in as she's crazy that's it and she's you know this woman that no one will believe so it's immensely satisfying when you know finally both terminators show up and yeah. you know, there's this i don't know what is his role institutes lead doctor yeah know? exactly <laughs> Sarah's parole. Head or, shrinker. Yeah, the head, right? head shrinker. And I, I think the. that he have a cigarette or something in his mouth. that drops? Oh, yes. And yeah. The whole way, you know, there's the Battle of Terminators. It's just so satisfying. It's, it is. It's, it's a very, you know, like, see, she told you, asshole moment. I love that.
0: And you. yes, that was actually, and it's a carryover from the Ripley character in aliens, which is, um, takes place. Like she's been, we'll get it into it, uh, in like this suspended hypersleep for 50 years. Nobody is believing her story because they couldn't find evidence. And I tweeted about, um, or posted about, like, I didn't realize I was going to have such a crush on Michael bean, except when I like rewatched these and I thought, what is it about him in aliens? And I think it's because he delivers the hottest line that a guy can say, which is I believe you and I, he says it and it's that. yes I love that but would back to be a
1: much better place in the world if you just sometimes yes. are a word for it
0: <laughs> exactly right that would be great back to what you were saying about the trailer you know I, I posted the thing about like it's here where you realize you know he's good and he's bad and of course, then you have all the, well, actually guys. But what was funny is um, as people were replying, finally I had to mute the thing um, because it went like slightly viral, like teeny viral for me. Um, but was talking to people from other parts of the world that didn't have that ad campaign were like, I was totally shocked. I'm from Brazil or I'm from all these other countries who had no idea. And then somebody with some association with the industry replied actually it was the third trailer that gave it away so if you hadn't seen the third trailer which came out pretty late in the game like right before the movie opened um then you really would have been shocked so i, mean, I th- yeah
1: i mean the thing that really annoyed me about all those you know explainers but like, <laughs> i mean they inherently assume um let me try to put it in you know a cohesive way they inherently assume that a movie's marketing is an integral part of the movie's artistry and narrative
0: yeah for, separate
1: separate <laughs> even for someone who has seen the trailer the movie itself is the movie itself because the script yeah. is being written with the idea that okay so this is if we reveal that in the trailer then this movie plays differently etc you mm-hmm. have to look at what that Movie's narrative is a way of marketing, and the movie isn't revealing. Objectively, Mm -mm. isn't revealing Arnold Schwarzenegger's identity until you know several scenes in.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, like even if you've seen the trailer, the movie is still not revealing it for you.
0: No, you're right. Yeah,
1: (laughs) are like enmeshing marketing with that. I mean the. The other fascinating thing is that you, you did mention, you know, this T-1000 is a cop, but a, a great thing that I want to share from Rebecca's book, um, and, you know, everybody who loves Cameron should really...
0: Yes, know, it was an amazing book.
1: It, it really is, The Futurist. Um, you know, for the longest time, even before he made the first Terminator, he always envisioned this you know t-1000 or like the batter terminator whatever the term terminology would be as liquid metal that he actually never considered Mm -hmm. who terminator was you know like just yeah it took him a while i love that yeah it it took him a while and then it actually he he was i think either challenged i I don't want to say confronted I think he was kind of challenged, you know, according to the book by Stan Winston, Yes, the, you know, multi Oscar winning um, effects person. Um, it's always it's helpful when you're kind of just so buried in your head with this idea to share it with somebody and that somebody can tell you as a person looking at it from the outside, what's missing in that idea. Um, it happens with writing a lot. And he said, you know, like, I, I love all these, you know, liquid metal ideas, but this guy does not sound to me like you know a villain for the ages to be feared I don't know yes we see you have to think about who this guy is then he actually realized that he has to you know make it into somebody more than liquid metal and I think it just came to him you know yep. watching the news or something else that he called Stan Winston and said he's, I a got he's, a, mm-hmm. he's an LAPD officer
0: And his explanation of why was so good. He was talking about because in order to do that job, they have to kind of break down the humanity out of them. So they look at everybody else, like um, all non-cops or all civilians are like people not to be trusted or looked down upon. And as somebody who has a bunch of cops or grew up around them, I babysat cops, I have like four in my family. And I saw what the job did to them. Um, One of my Friends actually just left the force because of what was going on. After that many twenty years, he's like, I started realizing I just didn't like people anymore, and that didn't feel good, and I wanted to stop. And so I thought that was a really clever, and it was kind of weird too that he came up with that, and it was ahead of the time uh, of Rodney King. I think that happened. Um, was it after they were shooting, or it was pretty close, but. He came up with that ahead of cool
1: it. That, you know? yeah. it, it, it wasn't done, obviously, with that in mind. No. Yeah. It, again, you know, maybe we're over-crediting him for, you know, sniffing something in the air. But even without that, to, you know, understand what kind of face a cop uniform would put, you know, on this yeah. already identifying robot um, is, is definitely ages ahead of his time and um and obviously police brutality corruption none of these are new concepts but looking at terminator 2 from this side mm-hmm. of the first century with the past few years that we had um not, not only did it age so well I, I feel like it kind of just um assumed a different meaning that uh,
0: yeah it plays even better i think it's today yeah. Even- better yeah. You know. yeah excellent points are there anything else is there anything else you want to talk about with the terminator franchise
1: i mean the only other thing i want to say is um you know I, I also love because we talked about the first terminators casting i do love the t-1000s casting too um robert patrick because he's you know not only is he a cop but he's also the exact opposite of everything
0: <laughs> he's <laughs> kind of like michael Bean, like boyishly handsome like somebody you would expect as a boy next door and okay, uh
1: yeah. lean trim yep. you know, um and and i think this this was also in the book that he was thinking well if the t800 was a tank this guy had to be a porsche and mm-hmm. that's what he was thinking
0: I know. And that's such a good um, description of it because he was talking about with his friendship with um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was actually given the script originally, we should say to people um, with the idea that he was going to play uh, Kyle Reese um, and they wanted OJ Simpson or something for the Terminator. Yeah. It was not going to be good. Um, but in the friendship, as they were talking about over the years with Arnold arnold drove a humvee and um jim cameron was all about the corvettes and the porsches so i love that analogy yeah so cool yeah i know i think that's great and the action scenes i think still play really well that entire um i think still the first chase with arnold and edward furlong on the little um the bike um
1: and the, and the, the truck um, and the
0: truck oh my goodness
1: I, I think that is basically, you know, the gold standard of action making that sequence. Yep. Um, I mean, some, sometimes, you know, I, I have I do this thing, you know, I would like to think everybody else does that, too, with films that they love. You know, like sometimes I don't want to watch the whole Terminator for the three millionth time. I, I just want to watch like one scene.
0: Yeah, and the, the chase scene.
1: <laughs> one scene I would go to, I'm like wow I feel inspired now I can go back to writing this review that's not going anywhere
0: <laughs> yeah it's instant adrenaline and it goes to the whole
1: <laughs> adrenaline it completely yeah
0: and it goes after. right to the underdog aspect too because uh it was another joke about he always was putting people like uh bad guys get to drive the semi trucks or the, you know, the real, those things and, you know, give the kid a little bike or they drive station wagons or it's not that glamorous. So I love that. Yeah. Just the David and Goliath of sizes.
1: Also, you know, it's, it's again, those human stories, you know, I love everything in the second Terminator about effects, you know, that checkerboard floor, you know, assuming, yeah. of, you know, the guy and then arm turning into a knife. Um, and all of those effects, by the way, I can't believe this, this movie is, you know, three decades old at this point. And yeah, they still look like a million bucks, you know, I, I, they I won't, do. They really do. And I, I won't hear it from anyone who claims otherwise, it's really just brilliant, but at the core What's really great about Terminator 2 is that it is, you know, a mother and son story. It uh, is, yeah. Like he, is, he is somebody who's been, you know, just screwed around in the foster care system. You know, he is basically this underdog that, you know, you were talking about. No one really cared for him. He didn't have a good parental figure up until then. And then the kid not only gets a chance to reunite with his mom who will do anything in the world to protect him. But he also gets a surrogate father, you know? Yeah.
0: It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's
1: really beautiful, And that, that's why James Cameron's movies, I, I feel like they have longevity because if it's just the, the muscles and the gun and the effects, that's not a complete movie. You have to have, to be again like really trite and cliche you have to have the heart and this movie has plenty of it
0: no that's perfect yeah and it goes back to um sarah being um people listening should probably know you and i know we read the book but was probably inspired by jim cameron's mom who could like assemble weaponry in the woods. And she also was an artist and just real independent and kind of um, bristled against the homemaker expectations and was sort of um, a Renaissance woman. And that's what he grew up watching. But I loved what you said to you about the heart or there's a message behind it. Like at the end of the movie, Sarah's last lines of like, if a machine can learn the value of a human life, then maybe we can because you're right. It's not just guns and chases because during this whole time, like Schwarzenegger isn't allowed to hurt a human. And so he's watching um, like kids play with toy guns and how alien or foreign that would be. um, You know, he's not allowed to hurt a human. Why are people raising their kids on this stuff or sort of the, what are we doing with our own human race? And I thought, you know, these movies are a little bit more revolutionary, I think, than they're given credit for.
1: Completely. And sometimes I feel like we take these little things for granted so much that we write them off as simple minded or cliched. But I think I, I, I will always choose a movie who that has this message than a movie of yeah. any kind of consciousness any any day. And that's one of the things that I'm missing in some of the you know action filmmaking or the, the big superhero stuff right now.
0: Yeah, the Um, empty spectacle.
1: The empty spectacle and, um, you know, what comes at the expense of what. I don't think those are always um, considered in in a way that, you know, I would like them to be considered.
0: Perfect. Well, written at the same time as the script for Rambo 2, which was seriously altered by the time the film was shot by Sylvester Stallone, plus Jim Cameron's rewrite on The Terminator. The filmmaker had Vietnam metaphors and the military on his mind when he penned Aliens, the follow-up to Ridley Scott's smash sci-fi hit based on his own script for a genre thriller he had been calling Mother. Given the initial setup by alien producers that a colony gets wiped out, the Marines are sent in, and then, quote, some bullshit happens, Cameron delivered a thoughtful piece of action horror for Sigourney Weaver's character Ripley whom we learn is named Ellen in this one. From junior officer in Ridley Scott's original to as Weaver dubbed her Rambolina in the follow-up, this film set some 50 years after the events of the first movie finds most people doubting Ripley's saga of space horror until they lose contact with everyone on the colony sending Ripley in as an advisor with a group of military men and women all eager for action, including a very hyper Bill Paxton and once more a seriously sexy Michael Bean. Some bullshit definitely happens, but it's also scary as hell. So what are your thoughts on Aliens?
1: Um, I was actually re- revisiting Aliens last night in preparation um, for this conversation. And the the thing that you actually mentioned earlier really struck me and I, I did say oh my god it's another story of you know yeah. the woman, woman will <laughs> <believe."> <laughs> I know right yeah and it's not even a woman like Sarah Connor who is you know who could be crazy and making up a story about the future man or whatever yes. somebody who was you know, demonstrably discovered floating in space and she had a story tell, but somehow it was easier for them to dismiss her concerns as opposed to just say, okay, maybe you you might be onto something and (laughs) tell us more. Um, The other thing about aliens, and, you know, this is something that's true about every James Cameron movie. And I I probably should have mentioned this when we were talking about them you know, in in the beginning, just more in general, I think he is um, maybe a little like Cleanies, Eastwood, a big skeptic of establishment, a big skeptic of big power structures. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it can be a government or private corporation or you know any 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 powerful entity he definitely critiques and he gives basically the power in the hands of the individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it in, in Terminator, you know, the, the enemy is really Skynet. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you think about it, then, um, aliens, you know, there's the company, you know, there is like this big overarching company with another agenda of like studying an alien form. Um, When you think about Titanic, again, it's the rich man's ship that did not bother to build enough lifeboats. So individuals had to take it up themselves to save themselves. And so there is always the the person against the institution. And this is perhaps, you know, this is perhaps most evident in aliens um, because, you know, when Ripley wakes up you know the the first person i think she sees is um i I, paul reiser yeah um he i think he says something along the lines that like i'm from the company i'm not a bad guy or i'm a good guy it's almost like he by default knows that he has that um reputation or he has that perception and he kind of needs to say something that disputes that so you're already starting with you know the I mean, obviously, you've you've known that in Alien too. but even in this movie, you're instantly reminded that company is not the friend. They're not to be trusted. And if he's making that statement that, trust me, you're double likely to just say, okay, I'm obviously not going to trust this guy and I'm going to stay with Ripley. Um, And the other thing about Aliens is that, I mean, the first Alien, Ridley Scott's movie, is, you know, an Extremely claustrophobic, phenomenal space horror. Um, mm-hmm. My computer make this sound. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. So it's it, it's this wonderful sci-fi horror set in space, but it's also very minimalist. Um, you can actually see that it's completely made by a different director when you're watching the sequel. Yes. Who is interested in, you know, that terrorizing um, creature, obviously, but also he is interested in dialing up the action, you know, mm-hmm. of this. Um, and that's exactly what he does in aliens. But also he, you know, in, in, in this aliens, there is another love story that we get to experience between Ripley and Newt. It's almost like a surrogate oh, yes. to her. Um, and again, that cheesy heart and soul that I was talking about, it it definitely belongs to this, this central relationship between this little girl that they discovered in the colony ship that um, they go on for a rescue mission. Um, and I do think that... Even though I know I'm probably supposed to like the original Alien more, I can't help but feel partial to Aliens because I just really love that, you know, sort of mother-daughter dynamic that's at the heart of this movie very much.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's something special. And if memory serves, didn't Sigourney Weaver receive an Oscar nomination for her role in this Yes, best actress. So she was, I remember reading the first actor from a science fiction movie ever to be nominated. And I think it's because she was a very fleshed out, I mean, more so than the original, which I believe had been written for a man. And then they just, it became Sigourney and they didn't change a thing, which is very cool. One thing I also love about the film is that even though, of course, both Ridley Scott and um, James Cameron would have been inspired or influenced by Stanley Kubrick in 2001, Mm -hmm. um, they did so in different ways. Like you can kind of look at the original Alien as being more Kubrickian. um, And then this one feels far more influenced by like a post George Lucas Star Wars, even though the original Alien came out a couple of years later. This one just feels like it was probably a little bit more influenced by, I mean, both the original, but also those Star Wars films and how quickly um, the action happens. One interview that I have read recently, it was like a contemporary at the time, he was talking about... Um, how if the first movie was a fun house which was more horror this one is a roller coaster and I thought that was a really good uh, description because I had forgotten when I was watching it um, recently but it does take like 60 minutes before we really get into our first big action uh, sequence and then it's like action all the way for the rest of the film so it's like we spent that first hour sort of slowly going up the hill of a roller coaster and then just go speeding down for the rest of it
1: completely yeah. um, i i was thinking about the same thing when i watched it yesterday but once once the action kicks in then yep. you feel like you're against this ticking and clock and the made yeah. and then it just never stops and it's such tightly orchestrated you know pressure cooker of a movie you know mm-hmm incredible action scenes and and that's i think what i mean i'm just so glad that you put the context around it you know the you know the kubrickian um kind of more um maybe contained and kind of space horror um versus something more action and operatic that that was just the more kind of trend at the time in the you know post star wars world i i do love that um you know history of cinema context around it. Um, But also in basic terms, that's also Cameron's style to dial up the action. So it really matched him perfectly to take this franchise to somewhere else. And, you know, I kind of just lost touch with how many aliens there are. But I would say for the first four, that kept happening. You know, when you watch David Fincher's That is very much a David Fincher movie. He also put his own stamp. Their own signature. Yeah. And Junae
0: on his.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, again, a very signature. And, you know, I don't like the third and fourth installments as much, but you Mm. can see those filmmakers at work. Um, But right right now it's more, it looks like a more marketing generated, you know, that's where the franchise (laughs) is for a while. But the first four aliens definitely carry those um, signatures for sure. Um, and, and also, you know, obviously that's no surprise. We have seen that in the first alien at that point. But the design of the xenomorph, the creature, I mean, it, it's both grotesque and disgusting, obviously, but yes, also some really um, strange, odd beauty of it. Some, some elegance in that design that
0: yeah
1: um, I articulate. But that's, I think, what that makes so, so frightening and how they kind of blend into the environment. You know, it's always been at the background and then they, you know, just kind of make themselves appear and crawl out of a hole in a different way. And all of a sudden the whole room is an alien. Um, those are some of the effects that, Cameron's movie did so stunningly Um,
0: I agree
1: genuinely frightened watching it oh yes (laughs) and I probably have seen it a million times before
0: yeah I miss practical effects like I almost wish he would use more like you talk to him now and I, I agree with him not me personally, but (laughs) journalists talk to him now. uh, And I agree with him on, of course, he agrees uh, that, you know, stunt people should never get hurt and stuff like that. But I do miss kind of the hands-on, the more practical stunts and the practical effects. And this film is just with the Stan Winston and all of the, it is like grotesque, but, and it's cool when you, It goes back to his Corman days, you know, building models and doing visual effects on like Escape from New York for Walter Hill and all these things that he did. And it really pays off here. And so watching that around the same time I watched Avatar, which didn't work as well for me this time, I was thinking as what well, you know that's a spectacle and gorgeous but it did make me miss a little bit of the hands-on um, pull up your bootstraps like we'll figure it out we'll get some ky jelly and we'll get which is what they use and a bunch of things and uh yeah we'll go to town so it's very clever
1: exactly and i think some of that also applies to terminator too um there's obviously a lot of cgi in that movie but something that people don't realize yeah. is a lot of handmade, you know, prosthetics and good old-fashioned, what you described, like hands-on effects that, you know, you just need to kind of play around and figure out. And I think that's why those effects are still, you know, standing the test of time today as opposed to, oh, there's already a technology that's 100 times better than this. You don't feel that watching Terminator 2, and that's a big part of the reason, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of the cast of Aliens? I mean, it's such a good ensemble. They're all wonderful. It's cool to see um, Bill Paxton, who, you know, had worked alongside him, like painting sets back in the Corman days. Um, He was somebody who gets beaten up in the first Terminator, and now he has more of a role and then he would continue. So it's cool to see Paxton and the whole crew is just great. I loved Vasquez. I'm blanking on the actress's name. But yeah, they're all so good.
1: It's a really great, um, you know, muscler ensemble. And I don't use the word muscler just, you know, literally, but also, you know, m- metaphorically, you can actually see how this troupe is a team.
0: Yeah. You can
1: really see, you know, what spot that they're feeling. And there are also so many just, you might think they're a throwaway, but in the beginning, there are clever lines and banter that's exchanged between crew members and, you get the the ideas around, you know, like class and sexism and racism and all these issues of, you know, what makes the dynamics of this group tick, and you know where they belong in this almost prototypical society, but in a very small way. You 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 get those little touches from them, and the ensemble sells it beautifully. Um, one thing that just really cracked me up yesterday was. Bill Paxton's, you know, very purposely overacted. Oh yeah,
0: it's all over the place. (laughs) You (laughs) haven't kept up with current West.
1: We just got our asses kicked.
0: Yes. Oh, he he completely sells all those lines. I love it.
1: Like, and he he basically just kind of steals most of the movie with that one line. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When
0: I was reading another interview, he talked about the fastest way to endear uh, characters to people is through humor. And, you know, you have soldiers embedded together. Uh, They're going to, you know, start picking on one another jokingly and like inside jokes are going to form. So we do fully get, it's not like here, these people just met today and now they have to play like they're a team. Exactly what you were saying. We can feel the camaraderie and you do get the sense of these people have battled together, worked together. Like it is a great group right from the, the start.
1: I mean, I, w- I would almost love to know what it took to get that ensemble to that level of chemistry that, you know, you, s- you see them together and you buy them together. It's like a package deal. You understand that th- those people know what makes the other one tick. Um,
0: I, I think wonder- it was a boot camp. Um, they did uh, do like some training, I believe. But I yeah, think I it was a crash course, though.
1: As if it wasn't some of the things that I read. Um, but... You know, it's it's um, it's a very difficult thing to sell yeah. three of an ensemble. And when you actually, it's almost like figure skating. When it's done well, it looks so easy. You have no idea how hard it must be. But yep. if something goes off, then you can actually you become aware of all those bones that can break. And this ensemble is just so perfect.
0: Yeah, you can't fake chemistry and they all have it so beautifully. Yes. Is there anything else on aliens you want to discuss?
1: Maybe something else will come to me later. Oh, uh, we'll,
0: we can just, we'll be yeah, referencing throughout. It, exactly.
1: It. <laughs> it's just, it's just wonderful. It's really, really exciting. And I love, I love Newt so much.
0: Yes. Newt is such, a, I was so heartbroken when I, I reviewed the box set like years ago and that was the first time I'd watched all of the films. And um, so, at the beginning of Finchers, when they killed everybody off, it was like, oh no. Yeah.
1: I love that moment where Ripley is kind of putting everybody to shame, saying that this little girl could survive and yeah, <laughs> almost about to kind of, I don't know, there's a moment in this film that they're doubting whether this mission, um, mm-hmm. you know, is, is plausible and, you know, it's just this one little girl who somehow managed to survive with yeah. almost no resources.
0: I know. But I love that. Again, a woman having to, be, a girl, having yeah. to be scrappy. Yeah. Yep. Well, next up, we have the reason we're here today. Thomas's favorite and one of oh, the, <laughs> yes, the last great epics of the 20th century. Back when we were still making epics in this country the most expensive film ever made at the time, and one that more than made back its money, 1997 smash hit Titanic, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet as two would-be lovers from different social classes who have a fateful meeting when the penniless aspiring artist played by DiCaprio saves the suicidal Winslet from jumping to her death into the icy waters off the RMS Titanic when she felt like her life was out of her hands and out of control. Promised to wed Billy Zane's suitable, wealthy son of a shipping magnet, even though she yearns for a life where she chooses her own spouse and her own future, her relationship with Jack helps give her the courage she needs to defy the expectations of the time. Filled with tremendous special effects, gorgeous costume, and production design, and a first-rate cast, the Titanic success of Titanic went beyond the box office to net 14 Oscar nominations and 11 wins, including Best Picture and Best Director, and tying with another studio epic, Ben-Hur, for the most Oscars won by a single film. But enough about that. Please tell me about your love of Titanic.
1: Um You know, I don't even know where to start when (laughs) the topic movie like Titanic. Um, One of my, I mean this unironically, one of my most, you know, loved movies um, perhaps ever, and a movie that my poor husband had to watch more times than (laughs) he would have cared. Like, you know, what's a good idea? Let's put on Titanic, and you know, that is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, we're still married. Go figure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, this might be a really obscure place to start the conversation on, on Titanic that, but I think Titanic is kind of why, um, I wish instead of, you know, or in addition to making all these avatar sequels, Cameron was doing another big, spectacular original Hollywood movie because, those are just you know again no one does it anymore almost no one does it anymore with that budget with that scale you know movie star driven epics Mm -hmm. and he's a filmmaker who's still alive and well and he could do it i hope that in between all those avatars there is room for same Titanic, maybe starring Timothy Chalamet or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of great up-and-coming actors or younger actors he can work with.
1: Um, but I think you know to to just sum up my love for Titanic in just a brief sentence. I just really love how, at its core, it's a big, old-fashioned melodramatic love story. Yeah, it. I, I think romance. And Titanic isn't only romance, it's also an action movie, it's also Mm -hmm. a a thriller, it it works in historical drama, it works on so many different levels. I I think why it has a big audience, because really, you can sit everyone in front of Titanic and there is something in that movie for them. Um, But, you know, first and foremost, it is a love story. And it's a genre that's often slighted, in my opinion, you know, that's... That's often um, considered lesser or not as world worthwhile as if we aren't all walking this earth, you know, hoping to fall in love and hoping to be loved back. Mm-hmm. It's you know most most primal of human emotions, and here is a movie that is not ashamed of it. You know, like most melodrama melodramatic love stories aren't but who actually puts, you know, the resources, the budget and the spectacle and also two extremely resourceful, good-looking movie stars behind it yeah. and tells it in the grandest possible way, you know. Um, and that's something that I, I will always value about Titanic. And there's a reason that people cry when, <laughs> sorry, spoiler, Jack dies in the end and the <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're fine. But but I mean, again, this, this all sounds extremely simple and maybe, you know, trite, but it's also true. Um, that, that's why some things are cliche, because they're true. Because even though Jack and Rose spent so little time on the boat, but because they're so young and when you're that young, everything you live is like 100 Tightened. times yes. and heightened there is no way that you come out of Titanic questioning that love, the purity, the the reality, the stakes of that love.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, I am just, you know, so, so crazy about that movie, first and foremost, because of that reason. But I also um, really love, it's uncomplicated, but how... Um, Titanic's themes definitely aligns with you know Cameron's interests on a on a greater scale again yeah. you know the the rich big corporation White Star Line you know who couldn't be bothered no enough lifeboats cannot be trusted um, and there is definitely a, a very profound story about class in the in the middle of Titanic um, you know there's I, I think this was also in Rebecca's book that the reason that Jack and Rose are paired um, in the movie, like it could have been different. It could have been a rich guy and a poor girl, but Cameron looked at the stats of who has the most chance of survival.
0: Yes, I read and, that. It's yeah, like 90% exactly. to 16%. Yep.
1: Exactly. So like the the highest ranking individual on that boat is a rich female because yep. it's always women and children first. And on top of that, rich women and children first. Yeah. Yeah. A guy like Jack, basically the bottom of the barrel, you know, like he is mm-hmm. probably going to die and he, he only has his own resources and smarts to trust. And he also never lets you forget that class class diversion. Again, it's a movie that people think um, is, is so, you know, simple minded and almost these themes don't exist. But Every cut, you know, when you look at the grand room where people are sipping their brandy and talking about, you know, world affairs Mm -hmm. versus the the party, you know, down Down,
0: the
1: You know, this this editing that happens back and forth, you're never given a chance to forget about, you know, where Jack is from and where where Rose is from and how those two worlds are completely on different boats when it comes to you know a moment of crisis
0: Um, yeah they're absolutely star-crossed lovers he pitched it as Romeo and Juliet on Titanic and that's how it sold and that's what it is yeah yeah one thing I love about it and it's again you talk about him taking chances especially with his female characters well he really did that here too because he hinged like the most expensive thing of all time on a love story and you know the big fear is well will men buy tickets kind of just like terminator had um i mean by the time of t2 like one of the main characters of the driving forces behind it is a woman uh avatar has um a lead female as well he has always taken chances and men Did buy tickets to this because I was reading, like, of course, teenage girls, it played the best with younger women. I think it said 45% of the women who had seen it at the time, or young women under like 25 or so, had seen it more than once, but men were still buying tickets to this movie. And it just shows you if you tell a universal story or something very compelling. And he does put his um, spectacle and all that stuff, but underneath the surface are those recurring Jim Cameron things. Like we need an emotional investment Um, men will come. And so, you know, the success of like hunger games also, I mean, there have been. Hollywood is a little scared of putting a a woman front and center in a movie like black widow just happened after, I don't know how long she'd been part of that ensemble uh, of the superhero fair, but you know, they're very scared to put women front and center and Jim Cameron never adhered to that. And I love that about Titanic too. It is a love story, but Rose is a very uh, strong, capable character. She has to kind of find that within herself, but it's cool. Yeah.
1: It it really is. And I, I absolutely agree with you. That is a huge chance to take. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, gamble on our romance, but it's another thing to um kind of do it in the Titanic mold that yeah. uh, associate with a million different other stories. Um and he he definitely not only found that emotional core, but he managed to sell it in a universal, you know, package that yeah, yeah there was something for everyone in that movie. And it, it's just so um degrading to men of the studios to assume that you know they're not interested in love stories they are not
0: mm-hmm.
1: interested in um you know narratives and that that's completely false I mean if, if we deny the notion that you know if men feel these feelings too then yeah you know what 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 chance do we have as a species to survive
0: hmm yeah, at the heart of Terminator, it was a love story. Um, he called it a romantic nightmare when he was asked a few times. But I mean, these are all love stories. Yeah. And nothing is bigger than ter- uh, the Titanic film. It was also a huge gamble right after Waterworld. Do you remember when this was being made? Like all the things in Entertainment Weekly and just the various... Um, trades was reporting how much everything was costing and so we were all expecting it to be like water world too essentially and he proved them wrong yeah
1: i mean i have that's actually one of the reasons why you should never bet against cameron and yeah people who are saying like no one remembers avatar none of them avatar movies will be good that may be true but he always proved a lot of those skeptics wrong mm-hmm um and titanic was you know one of those um instances of that you know thank you for bringing that up i had completely forgotten that this was after Waterworld. Mm-hmm. maybe because you know i kind of raised Waterworld from-, <laughs> from your mind yeah although, although i think it was a couple of years ago i did rewatch parts of it and it's I thought,
0: interesting oh,
1: okay, this is not good this is still not very good but it's really not as bad as I remember no
0: yeah it's over hated as my friend Scott Weinberg would say yeah
1: it's just you know trend to you know start hating a movie and you kind of jump on the bus and then you know that that's your position but yes I do remember very clearly about all the you know stories this is just not gonna work the budget is exploding I think he first kind of conservatively Estimated somewhere around 80 million, but then it ended up being over um, 200 million or maybe beyond that.
0: Yeah, it kept going up.
1: It kept going up. And was he trying to kind of just sign away his percentage or his back
0: end points? I couldn't believe that. But but they insulted him uh, and
1: refused that offer because, you know, they were also. skeptical about what the movie was going to be and then
0: um (laughs) yeah they're like nobody cares about your back end points no one's gonna see this movie essentially and yes they insulted him enough he just rescinded the offer yeah because he was kicking in money for like to get Kathy Bates I think 150,000 of his own money or whatever Um, yeah
1: um and I mean, what else about Titanic? When I, when I meant, I don't even know where to start. I, you know, I actually really do mean it, but I, I also, remember
0: seeing it for the first time.
1: Oh, I do remember
0: seeing yeah, it. I was going <laughs> to say like, you have a story there.
1: I do have a story there. And I'm afraid it's not a very good story. You know, I, oh, I was, you're fine. I mean, I was living in, I mean, it's not that bad, but I was living in Turkey at that point where yeah. like. All the rest of the world has seen the Titanic. Okay, not all the rest of the world, but you know it was already yeah. seen in the U.S. and you know some other parts of the world. And we were several weeks after it initially got released. And um, so I'm, I'm just—I was—I'm just, just trying to remember. Maybe it was even after it was nominated for all those Oscars. I'm like throwing a blank. So you know we obviously didn't have the online ticketing system at that point. I remember going to the theater I chose to see it in. I chose my seats like I went in in the theater I snuck in just to look at seat numbers and oh that's then cute went to the box office and I say I want d 14 I'm making it up like the number yeah <laughs> because you, you couldn't select your you know own seat from a list at that point and then you know like my mom and I think a couple of other people wanted to come and I'm like okay this is a big event you know like We show up, you know, twenty minutes before. Nobody talks during the movie. Nobody's allowed to like drink water, breathe, or. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we are at the, you know, the I'm the King of the World scene, or maybe the, um, the Jack and Rose scene. You know, like yeah, oh, the kiss. Yep. And you know, there is some murmur going on around in theater that's like Mm. starting to, you know, become louder and louder. And I'm like, everybody, shut up. I have no idea what was going on. And then smoke started filling in the theater. No way. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is happening? And then they're evacuating everybody. Like, okay, I think there's a fire. And then like my mom being like the panickiest person in the world, we have to get out now. And then they opened the back doors of the theater and I'm still not moving. I'm like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to do it. I love so the movie, And then we stepped out. It ended up, they were just, you know, Burning trash outside, or something, in that the the door was just right next to it that the room was filling in. And I was so angry, you know, but it didn't matter because I ended up just going back several times that week and then the (laughs) weekend. I love that. I will never forget those, whoever those pricks were burning trash outside of the theater for ruining my first Titanic experience.
0: Yeah oh, mine was really funny. My friend Cammie had seen the movie a couple of times. She's like, gotta go. She, I don't know why I didn't know how long it was. I'm like, okay. And um, she's always late, like amazingly late. And so we get there and you can buy tickets in advance. And so the only place we could sit was like row three and I have a bad back. And so I'm sitting there like, this the whole time like basically laying in my seat like with my neck and I was remember
1: it like just basically right the first yeah or did they have a stage in front of it or anything um
0: you know it wasn't that raised like the flooring so, so like- it was very very level and so what was funny is I was just so engrossed though like I got up and I'm walking out and I'm like god my neck hurts and, and it like it hurt for a few days after that but I really didn't care because the movie was that engrossing, but it was, yeah, maybe don't see the three hour when they add 20 minutes of trailers. Yeah. Don't sit in the third row for Titanic was the lesson I learned. Yeah.
1: One of the things that's also really, you know, great about Titanic's structure. um, And, you know, again, Cameron thinking in simple, clear terms about how to pull the audience into the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually really admire his decision to not only set the movie in a flashback, but working in a really pers- purposeful scene there that kind of plays for the comedy value that yes. Stuart is being explained like, you know, oh, the ship hits like this. And then it's a big ass you're talking about and cracks into two. And then the first part goes in and then you have this like simulated experience of exactly how the ship Hit the iceberg, and then exactly how it cracked, and what happened to the parts. And I mean, right now I know a lot more about you know Titanic after we're something like read about it and Mm -hmm. looked at you know archival stuff. But at that point, I really did not know.
0: No, you neither.
1: I I didn't, and that scene gives you a roadmap of what happened, um, what what's going to happen Mm -hmm. um, when the ship finally hits, because it is you know, a little confusing without that. And it doesn't have to be confusing, but it, you know, he really clarifies that framework for you. You know what to look for, you know why something is happening and you know where um, in the process of the ship sinking you are when certain action is happening. So you already kind of have that framework at the back of your head and then you're placing everything else around it as you watch it. And I think, you know, it's screenplay gets a lot of, you know, shit from everybody that, oh, it's not very good, but that is, I think, a very sound screenplay decision to kind of.
0: Yes. It's like, tell us, and then we learn something and forget it.
1: And And and, yeah. And, you know, um, it's good that he spoiled what was going to happen because then you could pay attention to other things and not worry about figuring out, you know, what was happening logically in the action. Yeah,
0: and- yeah. it was around the time they had found some of the wreckage. Had you seen, um, before we talked today, the documentary he made in the early aughts? um was it i can't remember what it was called the one about the titanic uh was really good it was i saw I it in imax with
1: I know uh, what you're talking about i have not seen it
0: okay bill paxton narrates and that was really cool but yeah i think titanic was made um right after they had found stuff like the russians had gone down and so We had this wealth of new information because the only um, knowledge I had of it was in like middle school. uh, One of my teachers showing us uh, was it a Night to Remember? I think was the name of the movie. Yes, from the late 1950s, and so that was my whole knowledge of the Titanic. So, yeah, that's that's
1: a movie that Cameron himself was obsessed with as well, and he kept turning to it. And then one night, I think out of nowhere, he kind of just after it in to just watch it and that's when you know like he decided that he actually really wanted to move forward with the story that that fascinated him um you know i want to give a shout out to my um fellow critic and good friend bilge ebiri here vultures
0: Yay. <laughs>
1: if, if he listens to this because he is also a big big fan of titanic he's written so thoughtfully and um, beautifully about the movie on, you know, various occasions. But one thing that I think this was written for his own blog, I think it's called they live by night from very, you know, various years ago, maybe even a a decade or so ago that um, he was talking about why he loved Titanic and why he kept, you know, seeing it over and over again and why his friends and family were basically calling him a teenage girl (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for Titanic, he says something about the screenplay um, about the movie's dialogue writing because that's one of the things that Titanic is most criticized for. It's extremely simplistic um, mm-hmm. dialogue writing, but Begin makes a really good point. He said that never really bothered me because I always had the notion that I am watching two teenagers converse for the most of the time, and I did not really expect. Um, anything other than what I saw, or maybe I'm elaborating, but basically, he bought it for face value. These are for two teenagers, and therefore, the sophistication of the dialogue really fits their age, and therefore, he was not faced by it. And I thought.
0: That's a know, clever take there, Bill. I Yeah. Great
1: take. And I never actually was able to articulate why Titanic's dialogue did not bother me, but. Biggie kind of put words around it for me. It really doesn't bother oh. me. Either, but I do understand, you know, where people are coming from and they kind of,
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. When I was watching at this time, I forgot Jack's opening line is quoting Bob Dylan. You know, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. There are song lyrics through the whole movie that maybe that's why it was distracting me a little bit because it's like, wait a sec. He's talking about blowing in the wind and you know, there's all these things uh, throughout the movie and some cliches. They are teenagers though. That's a really good point. We should talk about the casting and the um, chemistry and the acting what are your thoughts on all of the, the wonderful
1: I mean, too, too, bad the, too bad their career came to nothing, you know.
0: I know, right? We never heard from Leo or Kate again.
1: Yeah, we don't know what they're doing right yeah. now. Yeah,
0: who are they? <laughs>
1: who are they? Um, I mean, again, there's star power and, um, you know, amazing acting talent. I feel like it's is something that we're just so used to today that just going back all these years and assessing this casting choice by Cameron is, is a little hard. Mm-hmm. They were partly unknowns, you know, at, at that point, I think Kate Winslet already had an Oscar nomination.
0: Yeah.
1: With sense,
0: sense and, and sensibility. sensibility, such a great performance.
1: It, it's a wonderful performance. And he, she was already, you know, known as you know this kind of corset Kate yep. Kate exactly um and I, I I think there was even like a point in Cameron's mind that you know oh I don't want to you know cast corset Kate for another course yeah
0: movie.
1: you know maybe he considered it like too easy but mm-hmm. you know um what, where was I reading this? It's probably again Rebecca's book. It is, yeah, because I loved the
0: the scene where, or I should say scene, the part of the book when they're talking about um, when Kate won him over and then they brought in DiCaprio and originally he didn't want to read. He's like, I don't read.
1: I don't read, but he's like, okay, thanks for coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love how Cameron knows how to use reverse psychology like he used it to close uh sigourney weaver on aliens like when they weren't gonna sign her he finally like uh because she wanted x amount of dollars made some comment like you know i'm gonna write her out and it's fine don't worry about it and then immediately her deal closes he did the same thing with uh dicaprio um, because he did do a reading begrudgingly they couldn't film it it was agreed Uh, Winslet was so impressed she like on her way out said even if you don't cast me like you have to cast him but he left him hanging for like three months because he had done Basketball Diaries was eating Gilbert Grape and Cameron used that great reverse psychology on well you know those are tortured and you had a crutch of I'm playing an adult Addiction, or somebody with a mental disability, or something, and he said, "You're right. This is uh the hardest thing: is playing like the Jimmy Stewart type or the normal type. And by using that, because he knew DiCaprio loved a challenge, kind of like Cameron does, it works. Got him.
1: It, it really did. And you know, so yes, he he wasn't an unknown either. Obviously, yeah, he was already. I think he was already Oscar nominated with What's Eating. Yes. Um, Um, Yeah,
0: lost to Tommy Lee Jones uh, in The Fugitive, another great performance, but I go back and forth on that. I'm like, I don't know, couldn't they split it?
1: (laughs) It's also so funny that, you know, that his um, kind of elevator pitch for the movie was Romeo and Juliet in Titanic. and
0: Yeah, DiCaprio wound up doing that.
1: Yeah, wound up doing that. But uh, yes, that's such a great um, section in the book that I, I do remember. But it also kind of goes back to what I was saying about this, this certain brand of romance or the breed of melodrama. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what I was saying about, you know, how people dismiss this genre as if it's lesser or easy or um, kind of not worth taking serious or paying attention to, maybe that's where DiCaprio was coming from too. Maybe in his mind, it was just a little Excellent. too... You know what I mean? It was just yeah. a, too, you know, non-serious for him. That a um, great point. Yeah. But, but I think um, you really do see how seriously Cameron takes the love story genre after mm-hmm. one, like Titanic. And I'm so glad that he did sell um, Leo on its, you know. Yeah. You know, you in parents' inherent value. And also, you know, it's, 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 challenging. It's really not easy to sell chemistry and love on screen. It's
0: no, it's- especially when you're in water for like 130 to 160 days or something. Yeah.
1: And when when you watch a good one, it almost makes makes it look easy. But when you're watching a movie where you know the two characters who are supposed to be in love have absolutely no chemistry, you can basically freeze ice in front of the screen. Yeah.
0: Then you get "I Love Trouble" with Julia Roberts and Nick Nolte, and nobody wants that.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great, great movie that really works on paper, but it just does not work on screen at all. Yeah.
0: No, <laughs> so, so
1: funny. yes, I mean their their chemistry is is amazing, and um, it's also surprising because there is such difference in their physicality too. Kate Winslet versus Leo DiCaprio, you know, in the yeah, she looks yeah, older. Yeah, she looks older, but also you know, this is one of the things I loved about Kate Winslet's movie stardom. She never kind of. Um, wanted to be a part of this extremely skinny movie star, you know, I'm obviously not calling her, you know, a large... Oh, no, no. When you watch Kate Winslet in Titanic, she's not this like dainty skin and bones person. Pixie, no. She she really isn't, you know, she has, you know, she has a figure and, you know, she's not, you know, afraid to, you know, show that figure. And I think it's thanks to that figure that we kind of... um, not only by her emotional strength, which we see throughout the movie, but we actually can by the physicality as well. um, That she does so well in the underwater scenes where she's carrying this. um, Oh, the ax.
0: Yes. That scene scares me, even though I know of course she's going to, you know, break him (laughs) free. Oh my gosh.
1: It's really, really claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, And. You know, the, the, the difference that it's, it's usually, you know, the other way around the, the, traditional leading man has the the same yeah etc but DiCaprio is actually this really slim you could also call him scrawny maybe like this Mm -hmm. young boy and Kate Winslet definitely looks more womanly Um, and you don't expect that combination work to in a traditional love story because it's kind of like the reverse Hollywood look
0: but it works so well. It does. And that scene you just cited is flipping the script again instead of like at the end of the third act, you know, the woman is tied to the railroad tracks and the guy has to save her. Here comes Kate with that axe. And I love Billy Zane. Can't say enough about Billy Zane. He's amazing as the villain. He's almost too fun. Um, That yeah, just from the moment I first see him to the end, I'm just, I love Billy Zane in this movie.
1: Such a great, you know, Bad guy for the Maybe, yeah the best slime ball. He he has no dimension to him whatsoever. He is just nope. rich and thoughtless and bad. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it's it's definitely telling that apart from um, the ship architect Mr. Andrews, the only rich person on this boat that has some dimension. You know, not counting Kato, of course, is Catty Base, and. Um, Molly because Brown <laughs> Molly Brown, but also um she comes from a different background she comes from yep. no wealth and goes from wealth and then I love that that's the woman who has you know the personality that you can relate to and all
0: the moral the- yeah she's new money but she still remembers what it was like to have no money yeah
1: exactly yeah um I was just about to say something I mean, oh I'm sorry oh we were no 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 we were Talking about the axe. Oh, yes. I I am wondering if it's just me and my husband, Eric, whenever we watch Titanic, which is too often, we're always so annoyed by the way that Cameron shot that axe scene when, you know, the handcuffs are being... Because you uh, don't see the... Well, because, like, she's going it from a different angle. She's going it from the front. You're thinking it's safer to do different way we're like no do it the other way but then somehow it works um but we're always like i can't look at this I'm the screen because it's normal
0: stressful person. yeah
1: hands will be chopped off from this angle that she is mm-hmm.
0: i know it's like get closer put it there yeah, yeah get <laughs>
1: and then maybe separate your hands a little bit yes um but you know we can't really talk about titanic without
0: the door kate's,
1: kate's wardrobe and oh okay
0: the door. Yeah. yeah. And the wardrobe. My God. Yeah. Just stunning.
1: It, it really is. Um, and it was only a few years ago that I caught a very small detail about um, the wardrobe choice. You know, after Kate Winslet um, has sex with um, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, Jack and Rose sleep together for the first time in that car, they go back to. Rose's chamber, and she changes into this beautiful, unrestricted lavender gown that really floats on her. And I always thought, okay, this is not my favorite look on her. Why is she wearing this? Her, Her dresses so far were much more beautiful. Of course, I got like the unrestricted feel of it. But then I caught the sentence spoken by her mother in an earlier scene that they were talking about bridesmaids' dresses for her upcoming wedding, and Rose wanted lavender, and she detests lavender. And I just think that it's very telling that she puts on lavender after sleeping with Jack. It's almost like kind of a screw you, mother. Um, (laughs) Oh, that's perfect, too, because um, I noticed the last
0: time I watched Goodfellas, Karen, every time she was wearing purple, it was like somebody was going to die or there was danger or whenever they showed purple, like on the Christmas tree ornaments, then we get the montage. So I, um, when I mentioned that, I can't remember if it was Matt solar sites or somebody was bringing up a book that was like, if it's purple, it means death or something. And so I'm glad you brought up the lavender because um, yeah, that is kind of implying someone's going to die. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then also the color that her
0: mom very clearly says she. Yes, she detests that color. And Kate's like, I'm wearing what I want,
1: Rose. Yeah, mommy's daughter.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. She's pulling on the corset. It's like, come on, mom. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. And then the door. Do you want to? Should we address the door? Everybody brings it up. It's so annoying. Or the board. That the, floor,
1: the, only, the only excuse I have for that is, you know, obviously, yes, it does look like, you know, he can make another attempt. But they've also come out of this extremely traumatic experience. Yeah. That was so grueling physically. They're in this water that Jack describes in an earlier scenes that like a thousand knives are cutting across your body. I almost halfway understand where you try it once and then you fall. You wouldn't could've, have could've. Like, the, the mental capacity and energy to try it again, um, both because you're exhausted and second, because you don't want to endanger the person. Like You just want to be generous because like that's what Jack did throughout the movie. He was just really generous. I mean, Kate was generous with him too, but it, it was just really his generosity that, even though he could climb he's like i'll just like keep her safe and i will just you know assume yeah. that, that's my job but watching that was it, my thinking yep yeah watching it in our safe warm comfortable living room obviously it's annoying
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is it comes up every time you mention this movie like come on and then I'll never let go. And she lets go. And it's like, that's of the promise, people. Listen to the dialogue. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, you can see both sides on that one. Well, yeah. should we move on to Avatar? Or are there any other things you'd like to talk about with this wonderful yeah. movie? i we'll
1: probably have a whole episode about Titanic. I
0: know. We might need to do that another time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, our final film
0: today is one that was decades in the making for Jim Cameron, Avatar started with an 80-page treatment, the filmmaker wrote in 1994, set to be produced after Titanic. It was only then that Cameron realized he needed to wait for the right technology to be available for his ambitious, environmentally-focused science fiction epic, which managed to work in some of the filmmakers' most famous and recurring themes and motifs, including questions about the military-industrial complex, And the moral, political, and ethical concerns of soldiers for hire, war for profit, plus a love story among opposites or people who on the surface you wouldn't expect to have much in common. And a powerful female heroine, this time one from a different planet, Pandora, in the mid-22nd century, which is where the film is set. Opening in 2154, as humans have essentially depleted our planet's natural resources, Sam Worthington plays a paraplegic former Marine who takes his deceased twin brother's place on a scientific expedition to explore the biosphere of Pandora using half-human, half-Navi species hybrids to better assimilate with the 10-foot-tall blue-skin-toned human-like inhabitants embedded with a military-for-hire group hoping to mine the planet for the mineral unobtainium. Worthington's Jake finds himself torn between his allegiance to scientist Sigourney Weaver and his Navi love interest Zoe Saldana, who saves his avatar's life, And the soldiers there hoping to get Jake to spy for them. An astronomical success featuring eye-popping 3D and special effects and a whole new language. Well, I feel like the spectacle isn't nearly as watchable as some of Cameron's other films, his earlier movies that we already discussed, particularly because of its cliched script. I still like a number of its ideas, especially the disability angle, and I'm eager to see what happens in at least the first of four planned sequels. So, what are your thoughts on Avatar?
1: Um, I think that it is a groundbreaking movie in its own right, mm-hmm. if not only because it's not really based on any existing IP. IP. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not based on anything that people are familiar with. No. It does imagine, um, create and then meticulously execute a world that, that did not exist before. And that's what you know we want from our um greatest storytellers. And I think I think Cameron did that. I, I don't disagree with you. Um mm-hmm when you when you say the script is cliche but once again there is something um comforting in that um cliche construct that he has for avatar (laughs) i remember (laughs) it was just so like when i was watching the movie i thought it was so clever when i thought oh this movie is basically uh dances with wolves but sci-fi um it completely is (laughs) that's a really good point i never thought of that it, it, it really is. But then it turned out that I, I wasn't so clever because South Park did an episode episode called Dances with Smurfs. <laughs> and it was kind of riffing on Avatar and kind of making fun of the movies, Dances with, Dance with Wolves themes. Like, you should really watch that episode because even though it's, you know, extreme mockery of Avatar, the whole Avatar world, <laughs> but... <laughs> I guess I wasn't the only one who thought that this is Dances with Wolves. You know, oh, that's that.
0: hilarious. I'm going to have to look <laughs> that
1: up. Yes. Um, but but yes. So, you know, as as much as, you know, right now y- y- you would be more kind of dismissive of that story of, you know, a, a white guy going into a tribe to understand their ways and to become one of them. Yeah turn to his origins understanding how evil those roots are you know when i when i was first watching with watching dances with wolves i obviously did not see the movie from that perspective you know to me it was just this really pure story um about a man kind of rediscovering you know the earth from on his own right and it was kind of nice to see another movie taking on that theme um you know this this guy hasn't having his own sort of entitlement in the world going into the wild of, mm-hmm. of the world and then thinking that you know he is already here like up there and then you know maybe they, they were lesser and then when he actually realized that he had a lot to learn from that you know, the movie assumed an emotional dimension for me. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. While I do agree that it's a cliche, that's something else you brought up. The disability angle, I think, is surprising. And, uh, and, um, of course, as an able-bodied person, I am not the best person equipped to uh, speak to those um, sensitivities, whether it does well with the movie. Um, But, you know, I, I think it, it was a nice touch that you could see it was trying to engage with it sensitively, whether it succeeded in that or not. It's not my place to tell. Um, but it was something that I appreciated seeing at the time. The the other thing that's great about Avatar and maybe that's part of the reason that it's longevity is being questioned right now by people who say no one remembers avatar, which by the way, is not true. Not at all. <laughs> I, I think it's the first movie that I thought, okay, now I understand why 3d technology exists. Um, yeah. It
0: was one of those early ones.
1: It, it, it was one of those early ones. I, I really, maybe with the exception of Ang Lee's life of pie um, to, to a certain extent, to this day, Avatar is the only movie that I am glad that I watched in 3D and I understand why that technology made that movie better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the very Cameron thing. The technology isn't there for its sake. It's there to enhance what he is trying to do. It's never a throwaway. There is always a reason why he is mm-hmm. using it versus, you know, 3D at the time or after that, became you know the the hot thing to everybody had to release everything in 3D <laughs> where the movie really didn't need it.
0: Yeah they were like converting even if you yeah. didn't shoot it using a 3D camera. It was that was a big question. Yeah.
1: But Avatar really did did need it. Um I, I'm I'm still remembering the first time I was sitting in a the theater, um just kind of surrounded by this magical world of Pandora that just looks so beautiful. But I thought oh okay you know i was so skeptical towards this movie but now i remember it's nice to remember why i should never bet against cameron this is a great movie and again that's part of the reason why maybe it didn't translate so well later on um because you know most of us are not watching 3d at home
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and a part of the reason why people think oh no one remember this movie even though that's not true but at the time in the theater, I just remember how um, overwhelmed I was with, you know, um, what I was watching. And, and again, the yeah. Weaver part. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver is great. Yes. I was to see her in another Cameron movie.
0: Yeah, she was joking that she was playing Cameron in this one. So kind of like a woman who knows what she wants. Um, but has a heart underneath. So she seems kind of like a hard ass, but yeah. So she's like, I'm playing Jim Cameron, which I thought was really funny. The first time I saw this actually was at home. I have a 3D setup. So I had it on 3D and I did watch it that way. Then, unfortunately, um, a few years ago, I had a concussion. And so now it's like, if anything's too fast motion or too, th- like I haven't been able to watch it in 3D again. And actually, I, First, when I put in Avatar, uh, the first five minutes, it took a little bit. I was like, oh, is this going to give me a headache? I almost thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to email Tomris. But it was OK. It did. Your eye kind of gets used to it. So it's a lot to take in. And I think, um, you know, that 3D technology, because it was developed for the film, like he was working on test shoots of this thing, you know, years before he made it. So it really does go hand in hand. I think the visual spectacle and the overwhelming um, what you have to take into your senses might overwhelm the story a little bit in this case, but it really is something to be seen. I liked it a lot more the first time. It might have been because of the 3D, exactly what you were saying. Uh, I am disabled, so taking um a disabled character was very important um early on yeah it rushes through it's a little cutesy like uh when he gets in his avatar body and he immediately starts running it's a little overwhelming but i did think about um you know i've had like a bunch of back surgeries back in the 90s and so every time i kind of have to learn to walk again essentially and so um I thought about that like man I would have loved that technology and so then I couldn't help but think this is going to be a pretty emotional movie everyone's going to we're not a monolith everyone is going to see it differently soldiers are going to see it totally differently so I would be interested um to know how this does uh hit or how it plays with soldiers um also you know paraplegics uh but I did think it was revolutionary. Just like Cameron was always betting on a female character being universal here. He bet on a disabled character being universal, which was very cool.
1: It, it is very cool. And also it, it is a reminder that he thinks outside of the mold that everyone, that yeah. if you want to make a successful movie, this is the sandbox that you're allowed to play in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I am cred while well, like, credit him for imagining, you know, always beyond um, what the industry is pushing on you. It also doesn't escape me that, of course, you know, being a, you know, white, straight guy with (laughs) success. He's in a good position to do that. But also not everyone who is in his position are capable of doing that in Hollywood. They choose to do that. And I think... If there is one one takeaway with our conversation about Cameron, that that must be it. Um, it n- not only is he someone not afraid to dream and imagine big, but he is also betting on risks that he doesn't have to bet on. Like given his, yeah. status, but he's still doing that, and um, I, I think that that's why he's you know one of the most important filmmakers and in Hollywood that I wish was making more movies. But then again, if he was, you know, um, making more movies and not waiting for the right technology and taking shortcuts, maybe then I wouldn't have this intense. Yeah, life.
0: He might <laughs> be playing it too safe. Then Maybe <laughs> wouldn't exactly. be almost dying on the set of abyss or any of these stories. Yeah. That make Cameron Cameron.
1: Or, or exactly almost dying. Yeah. The pre dives for for Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a couple of movies. My gosh. That he almost died, so we could have Titanic.
0: I know. Yeah. First it happened in the Abyss, then it happened in Titanic. It's like Cameron, you know, take, but we don't. I think that's what makes him great. Exactly what you were saying. He is unafraid to swing for the fences and the best filmmakers. I would much rather a director try something and fail or be ambitious then just constantly like play it safe basically and, and make then, a make us have oatmeal every day or something
1: he has the permission to fail obviously being who he is but but even the fact that he has that not everyone in his position are you know just realizing that privilege and doing something grand with it yeah um, absolutely the s- avatar you know, just want to say one more thing it, it once again is a movie that kind of brings me back to what I was saying about Cameron's movies in the beginning, that this, this anti-establishment, um, spirit in it is just so fierce because once again, you're talking about this, um, you know, the human group that's just, you know, about to destroy this beautiful place called Pandora. And, um, it's up to the Navi and some Wortingson's character to, to, to save it. It's once again the ordinary person against a huge system that is, you know, um, against everything good.
0: <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, these um, are tales of good and evil. I mean, he doesn't believe in God, but he believes in religion. and there's religious iconography and myth making throughout all of these films. I mean, he, he makes little in jokes about religion throughout the movies, like in uh, Terminator 2. I think it's either a car that gets um, wiped out or something. Uh, there's a bumper sticker that says Jesus saves. And then, of course, you know, all hell breaks loose, which I thought was a little ironic. He, he takes a little bit of tongue in cheek pleasure sometimes, but he still uses all of these, like, man trying to make sense of uh, life and the environment and um good and evil raising good people to not um unleash nuclear war on everyone or take over other civilizations and
1: yeah well avatar in this in this purest form is is a very um you know um mother nature kind of movie yes he really admires that balance and and the power, you know, if he doesn't believe in God, he definitely believes in some kind of other order. You know, that has to do with other forms of um, environmental balance. And and once again, that's not a message that we can easily write off today, um, Mm -hmm. seeing what's happening all around the world, especially in my motherland, all the wildfires. Yes.
0: Oh, that's been so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, it's been so um I mean I do hope I absolutely have no idea where the sequels will go where he's taking it and I am kind of purposely not reading a ton of coverage about them me neither yeah smart <laughs> not, going I mean not because I want to be you know I'm trying to avoid spoilers but you know like let's just see when the movie finishes I'll go see the movie. yeah
0: don't pay attention to the marketing campaign watch the movie that's basically yeah. it yes. <laughs> or the media. Well, Thomas, this has been just such a pleasure. I had so much fun chatting with you. You're so brilliant on this subject. It was a real treat. I want to thank you, you are, so much for doing this.
1: You're so brilliant, too. And really, thank you. Thank you so much for being so exceptionally, exquisitely well prepared for this episode. Oh, thank you. No, you're a Cameron Pro. And I learned a lot from you from our chat today. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
0: This is Jen Johans at Filmintuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.